Welcome to the One Nation Podcast. One Nation Party USA is a national political party in service to your freedom, personal capacities, dignity, and stewardship of our land and future. One Nation believes that the time has come to transcend our polarized politics and begin the process of upgrading our systems on behalf of creating a thriving future for all life on Earth. In this first series of episodes on the One Nation podcast, we'll be exploring some key orienting ideas of the party. To do this, we'll be joined in conversation by Christopher Life, one of the initiators of One Nation. Like what you hear? Consider becoming a member of One Nation by going to www.onenation.party or by finding us on Facebook at one Nation Party USA. Disagree with what you hear? Reach out to us and share your perspective. Unlike other political parties, we see disagreement as a doorway to deeper understanding, and we welcome your feedback. You can reach us at participate at onenation.party. Welcome back to the One Nation podcast. I am joined again by Christopher Life, and today we're going to be speaking a little bit about what we're calling the campaign to rebirth humanity. And part of that campaign, uh, or or the structure of that campaign, has been talked about by Christopher previously in a presentation, which will be linked to in the show notes. And so this is kind of like an accompaniment to that presentation. And we're going to explore some of the common questions, some of the common um, interesting or the, the interesting facets of this campaign. And so, uh, Christopher, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Daniel. Great. So, you know, the first and most obvious question, the question that I struggle with and others who I have talked to about this campaign is something like, um, you know, One Nation is a brand new party. We're two years away from an election. And a third party has never in history been elected in the United States, at least to the presidency. Um, and we don't really have a candidate. So, and But we're planning to win. We're planning as if we're going to win. What's going on there? <clears throat> Seems like a fair question. I was having a conversation with somebody a couple of weeks ago, and he is an expert in what he calls moonshots, which is basically a very extreme goal. Um, I think originating from the goal of getting to the moon. <clears throat> and he's been studying moonshots. Uh, for many years and um, he sees patterns and formulas around what makes radically um, extreme goals actually achievable. And he's convinced based upon his research that you can achieve 
1x the result or 1000x the result in the same period of time. It all depends on what scope you're focused on because different scopes of focus will result in different strategic considerations and different mm. tactics and different conversations and different narratives. And these strategic considerations, tactics, conversations, and narratives will attract certain types of players and resources. So we could go for a small win like the mayor of a city in the 2022 in the 2020 election cycle and will attract some support some hundreds of thousands of dollars some thousands of people uh, some local influencers who care about that particular city and we will guarantee that that will be the extent to which the bounds of engagement extends. If on the other hand, we orient around a national conversation and we orient around a topic that is a profound pain point for the collective body of America, which is the fundamental inadequacy of the two-party mm -hmm. system. A time when the entire world is going to be wondering what's going to happen next in America, where you have millions and millions of Americans looking at the national level, wondering if there's a ray of hope for our humanity as Americans and for America as a nation. And if we choose to orient around that scope, then with the same 24 months invested, we will inevitably involve thousands and thousands and thousands of people who would never get involved if we were going for a more conservative small win in 2020. We will involve super PACs that have millions and billions of dollars in them that genuinely wants to help us avoid the existential threat and hasn't had any way to point those resources yet because the only two political parties aren't actually even competently able to discuss systems change, which is the type of change required for us to avoid a, a very likely dystopic future if we keep banking on incremental change um, and yet keep digging ourselves our own grave with our um, poor ecological and mm -hmm. social stewardship. So... <clears throat> There's a moment in time for us to get extreme, for us to get radical, for us to put out the bat signal, if you will, 
to wave the flag, if you will, for those that are a part of the Democratic and Republican Party because they think it's the lesser of two evils, not because they're fundamentally, morally, ideologically, and values-based aligned with those parties. It's an opportunity for put as the bat signal and, and, and wave the flag for the 26% of America that are fundamentally politically disengaged, that have lost faith in the system because they don't see that there's any way that they can participate in the political system and still stay in integrity with their value set. There are huge swatches of tens of millions of Americans that are like a latent volcano. And it's a belief that I carry that if we do our job in the 2020 election, we'll be able to activate that latent energy held in the angst and frustration of tens of millions of Americans. And if we can activate that energy, and if we can invite people into a consideration that if we organize through our democratic processes, AKA voting, with the same level of intensity and radicalism and precision and organization as though we were organizing for war, then we have an opportunity in 2020 to take down the chokehold the two-party system has had on American government. And whether or not we have a successful electoral outcome, which I believe is feasible, we will inevitably create the awareness and the new narrative and court base that will slingshot us into momentous efficacy in the 2022 election cycles and every election cycle thereafter as we begin to build our membership base from the politically disengaged, from the rising millennial generation, and from so many other subcategories of America to establish firmly a formidable political vehicle that can stand as a beacon of hope for the future of American politics and a model and a leader of democracy around the world. Mm. So one thing that I've noticed or that has struck me in getting acquainted with One Nation is the way in which in order for people to participate 
in the way that you're speaking of, um, as if for war, or even just to really like comprehend what it is that we're asking people to participate in, we must first believe that this kind of nonlinear and radical change is possible. And that it's possible for us to kind of act into being, to take responsible for creating the context and the opportunity for totally radical, unprecedented change. And I'm curious for you, Christopher, how, how you came to be that sort of person and also what you see in people that precludes or obstructs their ability to kind of act as if this is actually possible. There's wisdom and fallacy by looking to the past for clues around what's possible for the future. And I think it would be very easy for somebody to look at the past and say, eh, you're not going to get, if you're a third party, then you're not going to get the media coverage because the media only stands for the, the two major parties. You're not going to be in the debates. And therefore, um, if you don't have those two things, then there's no way that the nation's going to take you seriously as a presidential candidate. That is an absolutely true analysis of the past. <clears throat> but I think that one of the things that makes me who I am um, and standing for this conversation as, as robustly as I do is that I feel like I've got just like an, a, 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 my finger on the pulse of, of, of the present and the future. Um, and that I don't use the limitations of the past uh, to overly constrain my visions of what's possible for the future. And if you look at the Arab Spring, if you look at other um, nonviolent, civilian-driven revolutions in Europe and other nations over the last several decades, you will see in one case after another that it was completely impossible to overthrow a dictator regime until the moment that it was done. And so we have all of these examples where through catalytic processes, millions of members of a country stood together and the existing system had to give way to that. This isn't a theory. This is this has happened uh, all across the last several decades. Nonviolent revolutions that replaced dictators with 
with democratic governments. So every person who was in any of those contexts could have been certain that that attempt would be futile because any attempts prior uh, had been. However, this notion that there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come isn't a saying that stood the test of time for no reason. It's a really profound sentiment. And I believe that we've arrived at the time of maximum discontentment with the existing political system that now, not two years ago, but now, all things considered, we actually have the ability to mobilize millions and tens of millions of Americans for radical disruption of the existing system. And that what CNN or Fox covers and who is or isn't on the debate will not be fundamental limiters to that movement having a dominant presence in American society over the next 20, uh, next 24 months. So it's that sensing into the exponential explosive capacity of that moment in time where we shift from that which was previously impossible to that which is approaching inevitability. And if that's right, then it's actually only a little bit of an activation force, like a match to a pile of gunpowder and a little bit of organization, like the organization a WIC might provide, that can help to activate that latent potential. And it's, it's possible that what I'm saying is not correct. But what's interesting is the more people that I talk to about this, they sit back and I, I almost always hear the exact same thing, which is, if there was ever a time for it, it would be now. And to me, that's very sobering because, because that is a, um, an affirmation that I think, in fact, that time has come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it strikes me that, like, you know, whether... Or- you may or may not be correct. We may or may not be correct. The people that you speak to may or may not be correct. But the question is, if there's enough people who actually are willing to act as if it could be correct and participate and actually put their time and their energy their money, their resources on the line, uh, that, that, that would perhaps, you know, in retrospect, make it correct. And I'm curious for you, like, you have become, it seems, very 
persuaded, very convinced that, you know, this is an idea whose time has come. And I wonder, like, what do you see that has persuaded you that, that, that it now is the time? I agree with your last sentiment that it's, it, it's the conviction that now is the time that is a prerequisite to it being the time. And like waves crashing on like a, a wall, every wave, you know, starts to put crack and weaken, weaken that. Um, and either we have the ability to have a whopping blow on that wall, which is the entrenched power source of the two-party system and help that to crumble, or at least it will be another meaningful blow that will tee up the next generation Mm. even better. And, um, Bill Moyer, who's a scholar, you know, has a great analysis of the standard eight stages of any social movement. And you, you track all these different social movements, they follow these same eight stages. And um, each one of these, t- and, 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 and there's, there's what he calls um, uh, activation uh, incidents. And these activation incidents, um, play an extremely important role in the efficacy of the entire movement. So either what we're doing at, at least serves as an activation incident that builds further momentum because it, 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 it moves it more into the public eye, moves it more into the public agenda, builds more relationships with more people who care about this thing. Um, the list goes on and on and on of all the value that the activation incident generates. So either it's that in service to something that happens next or it's the thing. Um, so I, I don't remember the last question that you asked. I happy to answer it, but um, I just kind of wanted to respond a little bit. To yeah, that. great. Well, so, I mean, the, what, what it seems to me is that, you know, there will be different kinds of levels of resistance to the possibility of this idea of like radically reconstructing the systems of the world. And part of what, or part of how I think people make themselves immune to those, that possibility is by not seeing the way in which the time has come for something like one nation. Right. And so I think, uh, perhaps if, if you pay attention, say exclusively to like New York Times, CNN, and Fox News, or something like that, you might be not seeing a kind of movement in our culture and in our world that, for those who are paying attention, it does feel like the time is ripe. Uh, and I'm just curious, mm-hmm. like, what are you seeing? What are you being exposed to? Like, what? What is it for you that has caused you to have right. the conviction you have? Well, there's so many different answers to that question. Um, it's interesting that you use media outlets as one example. And so I'll start there. 
whenever you do anything in life, start a new company on a topic or a political party, for example, um, everyone starts sending you stuff that they see, you know, articles and, you know, so-and-so is doing this and so-and-so is doing that. Do you know about this kind of a thing? And I feel like on a near daily basis, I'm being sent articles and resources um, from things like the New York Times, for example. Interesting that you use that example, you know, saying the two-party system is failing us. The two-party system will not be able to meet the needs of our times. The American public is fed up with the two-party system. Um, America's demanding a new political party. Like, it's just, it's as though um, the writing's on the walls, you know, and that's, and that's, and that's in um, traditional media outlets. And I remember looking around at all of the, um, the lawn signs for the, mm-hmm. this last midterm election, just, you know, a couple weeks ago. And I was, I was thinking to myself, there's no political parties. What, what, what why are all these names? What the colors are like lavender and yellow and orange and where's all the party affiliation. And I was just stopped in my tracks when I finally realized that that candidates are disassociating with their party affiliation because that association is more of a liability than an asset. When up until very recently, the party affiliation was the primary asset that a candidate had going for them as a way to signal to other people, members of that party to vote for them. So if candidates are shying away from their party affiliation in promoting their candidacy for mayor, governor, et cetera, um, what is that saying? Like that feels like, like if there's ever a canary, that's the canary um, that is revealing to us that the two-party system's power is weakening. And if we think about where we're at from a revolution standpoint, and I'm not saying that, that there needs to be a revolution of government, not at all. There needs to be a revolution of the political system, which is the two-party system. That's why people call it a system. It's a two-party system. There needs to be a revolution against that that then allows us to occupy government with a um, with a new political system. But if we use the example of an actual revolution like that has happened in, in recent times, the Arab Springs and others, then... it's there's really only a couple real power centers that a dictator has. Um, And the primary one is the perception Hmm. of their omnipotence. That's the primary power center they have. So when things begin to be revealed that they're not actually as all powerful as they want you to think that they are. That is the beginning of the end for them. 
and it starts to exponentially deteriorate as more and more people reveal like the lack of omnipotence that that dictator will have. The last thing that happens before a national revolution is complete is that the security or military changes their alignment and their affiliation. And I was watching this beautiful video. I think it was a Serbian national movement. And you have just millions of people thronging on cap the capital. And I just got, I've got chills right now, just even thinking about it. And there's this moment and the video cameras right on them. And the, the guards, the military that were standing in front of like the Capitol building, they just turn to the side and everybody rushes in and it's game over for that dictatorship. They fundamentally lost physical control of the governmental buildings, the governmental agencies, mm -hmm. and they're done. And so it's as these perceptions of power and those that have stood holding the power in place, literally and metaphorically the military, um, that are beginning to disassociate more and more from their valiant participation with that perceived power source. Like it's, we're moments away from rushing in because there's just not the, there's not the, the immune system of that power source is weakening. And I think there's evidence of that everywhere we look in America. Let me ask you, how does that all, how does that all come across when, when you hear some of those things? I'm saying some things that, that you and I have never explicitly talked about before. I'd love to know how that lands for you. Yeah, I, I was thinking of, I watched this video by Jamie Wheel. Yeah, so he was talking about um, collapse, which is something that I've been thinking a lot about recently. And he said that he was like, I don't know if it was him or if somebody told him about this, but they were with some Department of Defense officials. And these Department of Defense officials were talking with each other and, and talking specifically about existential risk, X risk. And at some point in the conversation, they turned to each other and were like talking about like, or asking each other, like, what's your personal strategy for when everything falls apart? And these are the officials at the Department of Defense, you know, the people that right. if, you know, you would think that if they were at all thinking that collapse was something that was a real possibility for our civilization, that they would be taking very radical action to meet that challenge. And yet it seems that they, as much as anybody feels almost like victimized <laughs> by the system that is driving us off a cliff. And so, yeah, there's something in that, in, in the seeing that the emperor has no clothes, as you say, that is itself a kind of momentary radical uh, invitation, because I think 
if you see that the emperor has no clothes and that therefore nobody's hand is really on the rudder, we're all kind of just, I, I don't know, at, at the whim of reality, that then that's also an invitation to, for, for some kind of stepping up and stepping into. You know, th there's a relationship between the military and the citizenry in these national revolutions that I'm speaking about. And they have to time it all right. And they have to be in relationship with each other. Um, and I don't think that the leaders of the military are able to take a stand for life on earth, you know, really leverage their military engineering capacities to be able to do something other than feed the military industrial complex until we have risen up to afford them the luxury of there being no other choice. And so, yes, I know that there's high level military officials who are highly concerned with existential threat. And it's my prediction that we will have a tremendous amount of support from people interior all throughout the system and that they need us to do what we're about to do so that they can do what they need to do. Right. Because I think if we look at examples of when, you know, essentially there's been a coup of some kind, and that's not what we're talking about here, but there's a coup and there's a vacuum of a kind of um, replacement power system or system of governance or coordination that can actually work for the people, then it kind of turns into something that's not much better than typically what was uh, brought down. Yeah. And so I think, you know, what's, what's yeah. exciting to me about One Nation is, is similar to what was exciting to me about Occupy Wall Street was that we were kind of like, as we were pushing to gather power, we were also kind of like growing the operating system that would enable us to wield that power skillfully and compassionately mm -hmm. and, and wisely. And I think that's a kind of like fundamental differentiator of what's needed now and why, why like a, a single politician, as I think we've seen over and over again, isn't going to do it. Even the most well-meaning, wise individual can't bring or single general can't actually achieve the kind of transformation that I think uh, you're, you're, you're talking about and that we both see as necessary. And, and yeah. So uh, is there anything you want to say on that? Yeah, please. Yeah. Yeah. There is the, so for those who are listening who 
may or may not know, um, our theme for the 2020 campaign is rebirth. And to take that metaphor in response to what you just shared, I don't think that a cesarean C-section is going to work, which is what you're speaking into. Um, we need to have the full birthing process and all of that energy, all the pushing, all of the squeezing that that birthing process occurs so that we actually can rebirth America and a birth is fundamentally extreme. It's fundamentally intense. It's fundamentally messy. But there's something about that process that gets the job done of actually moving from one reality into a new reality. And I don't think we can get into the new chapter of this reality until we rise up, move into the streets, literally and figuratively, make our civic engagement and the transformation of American politics our highest national priority. And how that engagement is informed by the existential threats of ecological, nuclear, and artificial intelligence scenarios that could threaten life on earth and create a real threshold for us to move across collectively. Anything less than that won't produce the outcome. In other words, we can't just sit at home, watch our reality TV, eat our potato chips, do a little bit of social media activism, have some other people solve the problem and have it work. There's a fundamental awakening and activation that has to happen in the vast majority of American households so that we can move into a new era of America and our global community in a very distinct way. This fundamental awakening or activation, as you say, like what, how would you characterize that awakening or how would you frame that awakening or that activation? Like what's, what's that that needs to happen in that? So it's a great question. Thank you. There's a couple different ways to answer this question. And I think that the center of the center of the answer to that question lies in the distinction between win-lose mentality and win-win mentality. And dare I say, it's, it's going to sound like an over general statement, but I actually think it's accurate that every facet of our society 
is premised upon win-lose mentality. Politically, we win, you lose, this bill favors us, it doesn't favor you, the sports team wins or loses, the company uh, is in competition, they win market share, another company loses market share. Um, our court system, a person is guilty or innocent. I mean, it, it's this binary like win-lose that permeates our entire society. And um, all the movies, there's a good guy, there's a bad guy, the good guy wins, the bad guy loses. Um, it's so pervasive. It's like the paint on the wall that you never even realized was there because it's just the water you've always swam in. And so it's this fundamental premise of, are we operating in a win lose dynamic or a win win dynamic? That's the center of the activation that I'm talking about. And we don't have to be in win lose. It's not like this, um, fundamental premise that is required for us to be in society. Although many people might assume that it is because it's the only paradigm they've experienced, but let's just take policy as an example. If instead of saying what policy do we want that works for us, that meets our needs, regardless of whether or not it works for other people. And can we get enough voters to back it so that it wins? Even if some people end up feeling bummed out. If instead we say, um, what matters to everybody and how can we create a policy scenario that would leave everybody better off? Like if we just ask that question, which is a question that isn't a fundamental premise in policy that I've ever heard anyone ask before, then it would instantaneously put us into a new thought process and a new paradigm. That wouldn't be about, wouldn't make it okay or even like an acceptable frame to think that it's cool for me to win if, if you lose. And for the vast majority of human history, it was okay for me to win and you to lose because I could actually win and you could actually lose. Um, but because our entire global economy is completely interconnected, because our environmental and ecological issues are at a planetary scale, because uh, nuclear war threatens um, uh, the entirety of life on Earth, because um, as uh, certain ecological and environmental transformations are occurring, it's requiring uh, millions of humans to move around. Uh, you know, like environmental refugees were calling and anticipating millions and potentially billions of. We're just out of the very notion that one anything, one company, one party, one country can win if it means that somebody else is losing because we're all on one ship. And if this ship goes down, we all mm -hmm. go down with the ship. So if, if, if people around the country and around the world can 
actually come to realize that we are all in this together. Kind of like that moment on the movie of Independence Day, where all of the air forces around the world start working together to take down the existential threat of the alien invaders. They realize like, there's no longer us versus them from a national standpoint. Now they have to direct their energy towards the existential threat. And now there's just a, oh, we just have to come together to do this. And that is the center of the activation that I hope all people, all families, all communities, and all nations, um, and all political affiliations can come to that realization. So we get out of this like, win-lose, which is kind of like rearranging the furniture on the deck of the Titanic as it's sinking. Um, yeah, you might maximize profits for next quarter, but if we don't, if we're in a dystopic future 75 months from now, like what did you really gain and what future are your children and grandchildren going to inhabit? Mm-hmm. Um, that all needs to kind of go out, go down the drain and be replaced by how do we all come together so we can work together to navigate the challenges and complexities of our time together so that we can survive and thrive together. Yeah. Nice. And, and I think that I love the metaphor or, you know, of, of, of the independent, the aliens at independence day. Uh, and I think what, what you're saying and what I, what I feel certainly is that, you know, the enemy in our case is not an alien invader, but instead it's almost like us and a certain kind of way that we've been coordinating human action that simply isn't acceptable anymore. And it, because it's not sustainable, right? Mm-hmm. It's like it's go, it's over a long enough time horizon. It, it it's kind of doomed in a way, and so there is an element too. I think of of just getting quite clear about the unacceptability and the unsustainability of of business as usual, and becoming persuaded that there is something on the other side that is profoundly different. And better. And mm-hmm. I wonder if there's anything you want to say about like that piece of it that like, okay, so there's this win-win paradigm. Like what does the world look like yeah. when that starts to be to the degree that we can even imagine that right now? What, what does the world start to look like when that becomes more um, realized and embodied? Mm-hmm. Well, so if we take the, alien invader metaphor from the movie independence day. And we say, okay, what, what is that, you know, a metaphor of, and, um, I'm really moved right now thinking about a conversation I had with a friend of mine just a couple days ago. And, uh, he said that the myth makers have been preparing us for this moment in time. And the myth makers have done the vast majority of their work through movies in the last 40 years. 
And so these, these metaphors um, and these myths that we've been watching, you know, since we were ch- children, if it's, if, if what he said is true, then um, it just becomes just really beautiful. So, so, so what is this myth of independence day? It's that you have these uh, aliens that everywhere they go, they extract the natural resources of a planet until the planet no longer has anything left, right? The, the wood, the animals, the minerals, the gas, the whole thing. They just consume it entirely. And then when the, the, then they leave a planet for dead, and then they travel to another planet mm. to do that again. So it's a fully extractive alien economy. And <clears throat> so we don't have to look very far into the metaphor to realize what these myth makers were trying to wake us up to. Because inside of that extractive economy is the premise that there's an us and we can take care of the us. And then there's a them and we can take advantage of, subjugate, objectify, uh, enslave, and consume the them. And with one planet, with one human, interconnected human family, and we all are interconnected, there are no bloodlines that aren't fully interconnected. So we are one human family with it, with shared blood. There, we're coming to a point where there's fundamentally not a them. And so we get to come together to birth a reality that's premised by a we. And since there's a we and not an us and them, then everyone is a part of that we. And everything is a part of that we. And the place, the the, the, the tribe, you know, because we, we come from this like anthropological history of being in tribes. Well, the new tribe is all of humanity. And the new place that this tribe evolves is the entirety of the planet Earth. Then now we start to steward our entire human family and the entirety of the Earth with the same level of care that a tribe might steward their 150 members and the valley that they're that they've lived in hmm. for however many generations. And what would it be like to be walking down the street and know that every other person knows that the most optimal version of the future 
that they could possibly experience is only able to be attained when every other person walking down that street is improving the quality of their lives and the quality and depth of stewardship that they're carrying for their communities, the ecosystems, and the planet at large. So there's a term called omni-considerate or omni-win, which is this, this, um, this possible paradigm that we can come to inhabit as a new norm for human society where it's normal for every person to know that what matters to every other person matters to them and to not be able to create products or institutions or economic models that doesn't equally factor in the needs and desires of all people. So that is, and, and, and you know what? Another word for that mm -hmm. is love. So that is the, the future that I think that we get as we move through this birthing canal. We wake up to the atrocities, inadequacies, and fundamental dead end that win-lose will get us to. And we mythically move into a realization and a conscious choice to become a win-win-based paradigm planetary society. And we know why we chose that. It wasn't an accident. We, 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 we butted up against the full, we, we attempted and learned in ways that we will be able to record for millennia. Why win lose will inevitably lead to us falling off of a cliff. And because we will have gotten so close to falling off that cliff, it will help us to remember for the hundreds and thousands of years to come why maintaining and cultivating that win-win paradigm must be integral to the institutions and society and culture thereafter. And so... You know, one thing, we're not going to have time to get into all the kind of uh, nuances of this campaign, but I think it's important to say that, you know, and we, we mentioned this a little bit, this idea that it's no longer the case that a politician, that we're going to fall for the idea that we can elect a certain politician and that will be sufficient to meet the challenges of our time. And instead, what you're articulating is that we're instead electing to collectively walk in the direction of this win-win paradigm 
or the paradigm of love uh, in our world, or at least in our in our country. Um, and that and that indeed, like you, Christopher, you are not like the 2020 campaign is not to elect you. It's not to elect me. It's not to elect any individual, at least at this point. And maybe you can say a little bit about instead, like what what is the 2020 campaign going to be like in a way that can clarify the difference in our approach and the typical way that, say, political campaigns happen in the United States? Mm-hmm. Well, the campaign must be a genuine embodiment of the future paradigm we seek to instill. And that future paradigm is one in which all voices are heard and represented. There's no groups that are whose voice is not a part of the discourse. And so what we're doing right now, uh, very successfully, is recruiting leaders from about 100 different communities. So I'm talking about different racial backgrounds, different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, different historic political affiliations, different interests, um, various movements, et cetera, et cetera. So that we can run as a coalition and imagine a hundred very different and very aligned leaders standing side by side, modeling unity despite diversity, modeling in how they treat each other, how they talk about each other, how they communicate with each other, bringing their entire respective communities along with them and helping every single person in America look to the one nation presidential campaign and see a face that looks like theirs and hear language that rings true to them, speaks their language, speaks to the pains that they themselves feel because that particular community leader knows them so well and is ultimately a microcosm of these different leaders of the entirety of America. And so that will position us to do something that's never really occurred before in any democratic election that I know of, where there was such a profound base of leadership such that every voice was represented in that national conversation and that national platform. 
to ground that practically, we will have a uh, primary election within the party in February of 2020 to identify which of those leaders will actually be on the ballot, which person would actually be the person to occupy the, um, the role of the president of the United States of America. And that process will happen internally. And it's our commitment to model a process for making that selection that is based in the paradigm that I'm referring to this win-win paradigm. And what I mean by that is the narrative is not about pushing someone else down and pushing somebody else and vying for that nomination. It's a very healthy and mature conversation of what does America need right now? What style of leadership does America need? What best positions us for <clears throat> an electoral outcome in 2020? Um, what are all the implications? And, and, and having a very transparent conversation amongst these leaders that might be interested in this in, in this nomination and amongst other thought leaders and amongst the the, the membership at, at large and the nation at large and, and and have these very transparent conversations which used to be the the backroom conversations in previous political parties to kind of decide what nominee they were going to really stand behind but do this in a highly transparent way that's authentically driven to want what's best for all. And since this is the value set and the, the underlying premise of the party itself, um, it will filter out very quickly people that are vying for pow power or the nomination that's not coming from the same genuine uh, approach towards what's really in everyone's best interest. Then we'll be able to undergo a digital-based voting process that will model to the world, how we can make scaled definitive decisions electronically, which in and of itself is an important breakthrough for democracy. And then we'll have our candidate. And then that candidate whose name will be on the ballot in conjunction with this, dare I say, army of leaders that are standing side by side, not behind, but side by side bringing and weaving their respective communities into the presidential cam campaign now focused on one particular name to check the box next to when they go to the ballot in November. And that's how we're starting to think about <clears throat> how to both have an individual and a collective simultaneously run for president that brings the entire country along with us while also fitting into the existing democratic institutions mm -hmm. of America as they are. Beautiful. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking forward, I think most of all personally to modeling that kind of conversation that you're talking about. And, and, you know, this idea that Forrest Landry brought up at the last assembly that the smallest unit of governance is the conversation right? That there's something sacred almost and profound in this act of turning to one another and having a conversation that recognizes that we're all in it together, that there is no us and them, but instead it's all of us, you know, uh, together. And I think 
just the opportunity to perform that, to model that is incredibly inspiring to me. And I think, you know, the Sam Harris says that the, the, the moral progress is just one skillful conversation after another, essentially, you know, the, this idea that we can actually demonstrate the win-win paradigm, even in, in the campaign itself is, is, uh, it's a, it's a wonderful idea. And, and even perhaps, you know, in, in these conversations that we're having together as we explore these topics and try to make sense of them together. Uh, and so, you know, as we head to the end of this particular conversation, Christopher, I'm curious if there's anything that you feel like wants to be said into, into this conversational space. You know, if, if, uh, if you as a listener haven't yet watched the video presentation that's linked into the show notes, uh, I highly recommend it because there's a lot of information there that we didn't cover here. Um, what I'm really excited about and inspired by is organizing with military grade precision and operational capacities. And we are going to need to take this on from many fronts simultaneously. And I think that the strategies that we are currently initiating are sufficient. I actually think that we have the right pieces in place that will result in the needed activation and mobilization of sufficient Americans um, to produce an electoral success for the One Nation campaign in 2020. And if you're curious to know more about that strategy, um, then stick, stick around <laughs> because uh, that's what is going to happen over the next 24 months. And, and you, can, uh, you can watch or you can play a role. And if you choose to play a role, then it, you know, I, I know that, that whoever you are listening to this, that we will be that much stronger and smarter and effective with your brilliance and genius and skill as we implement this. And, and, and I know that you know that's true too. Um, and so if we can create sufficient engagement and enrollment that we activate enough people that support us in activating the various different stages and phases of the next 24 month uh, rollout, then I think that now is our time. Thank you, Christopher. And if you're listening and you know, whether you want to watch or if you want to play a role, if you want to volunteer, uh, and if you enjoyed this conversation, uh, I invite you to head to one nation party. That's www.onenation.party and add your email list. That's going to be one of the primary ways 
that we touch in and create a kind of communication infrastructure for those of us who see that the time for incremental change is over and that the opportunity is before us to transition into a future that actually works for all life on earth. And so, Christopher, thank you very much for coming and talking about uh, this campaign. Thank you, Daniel, for all of your inquiries and, uh, and for your time. And thank you to listeners for taking some time to um, tune in. And I hope you keep tuning in. Thank you for listening to the One Nation podcast. The One Nation Party is made possible by your support. If you enjoyed this conversation, we invite you to explore membership and volunteer participation in the party by heading to www.onenation.party. That's www.onenation.party.